The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, This Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible for God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. I grew up in a small farming community in South Dakota, which many of you know. And one of the uh, interesting things about that community was that we had only three churches in that town. There was a Roman Catholic church, a Missouri Synod Lutheran church, and the Methodist church, of which our family were, were members. And the interesting thing to me was, as I look back upon those years, is that there was very little dating, if any, between the kids who belonged to the families of those churches. So in other words, it was unthinkable almost for a Methodist to date a Roman Catholic and certainly unthinkable to date a Missouri Synod Lutheran. They were so exclusive. So we had this sort of uh, religious segregation that was going on in that town. It had gone on for years. I've often thought how odd it is of us human beings to always have to define ourselves over against another group. Our group is like this. That group is like that. And they're different from us. And that was certainly the case in that town, at least until my teenage years in the 1960s. And we all know what happened in the 60s. Everything went to pot, literally. (laughs) And it all changed. And it was a good thing. As I think about the youth of this parish and the different way that they see the world from the way that I saw it growing up in that very segregated community religiously, 
I think how wonderful it is for them to know that they live in a world that is made up of so many different understandings of God and that they can respect the understanding of the other and not define themselves over against the other. Well, I mention that today because I'm also conscious of the reality of our own parish that in recent years we've had quite a large number of former Roman Catholics come to this congregation and become a part of it. And that means for us that we as Episcopalians are actually experiencing what we talk about as one of the great attributes of Anglicanism. And that is that we are a tradition that bridges the Protestant and the Catholic traditions and embraces them both in perhaps a slightly new and different way. We are truly the via media, the middle way. And for that, most of us are truly thankful. The thing, though, that we must also keep in mind is that as new people come into our congregation, we are also invited into change and perhaps expanding our understanding theologically of what it is to truly be an Episcopalian living in the 21st century. How does our practice change? What is it that we are becoming as a faith community? Now, I bring that up today because we have this wonderful passage of the Annunciation from the Gospel. And we heard, of course, and we said together the Magnificat, that beautiful hymn of Mary. And I am also very conscious of the fact that those of us who grew up in predominantly a, a Protestant background with that kind of theology, this is probably the only Sunday when we gave a nod to Mary, recognizing that she did have a place in salvation history. But for our Catholic brothers and sisters, some of them lifelong Episcopalians. It's a very different understanding, I think, of who Mary was and how important she was in the life of the church. And it's also interesting to me, if any of you who were at uh, Nick's presentation at the forum this morning, as he talked about the emerging church, that evangelicals are even starting to understand that Mary has a unique place in the life of the church, in the history of salvation. And the emerging church, made up of Gen Xers, of younger folks than me and most here, they are reclaiming the importance of Mary in the life of the church. Not as someone necessarily to be prayed to and venerated in the way that we often think of as devotion to Mary, but rather reclaiming a vision of her as the first disciple as the one who is the model to us of what discipleship can be. They have paused to look at the life of Mary and reflect on who she was and why she's important to the church. And I think it's important for us this Sunday to do the same, to pause and think about this young woman and what it must have meant to her to have been greeted in such a way and then what her life might mean to us as a model of discipleship. The Annunciation is a, is a powerful text, and all you need to do to confirm that is look in any book of art history or go to any great art museum that has galleries of, the, of art of the medieval ages or of uh, the Renaissance, and you will see many, many paintings of the Annunciation. Uh, when we visited Florence, it was suddenly it, we became aware of the fact that everywhere we went, we seemed to see another 
presentation of the Annunciation. And I've often wondered what was it that captivated the minds of those artists, that they wanted to recreate that scene over and over again. The other thing that I find very interesting about the portrayals of the Annunciation in medieval and Renaissance art is that they are almost iconic in their presentation. You know that uh, people who draw icons, uh, they conform to a particular prescription about how the icon should be put together, where the figure should be, their relationship with one another. And it seems that that's the case with the presentations in art of the Annunciation. Mary is usually portrayed on the right-hand side of the panel, and on the left is the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel is is most often uh, portrayed with these beautiful flowing robes, and sometimes with a sense of motion as the uh, garment seems to be bellowing up with uh, the, the breeze that seems to be flowing around him. He often is extending a branch, an olive branch, or perhaps a lily, to Mary, and his other hand is pointing upward toward God. And then Mary, on the right-hand side of the panel, usually dressed in period dress of the era in which the painting was done, is sitting, often with a book, probably a prayer book, in her hand. And then the interesting part begins, because it seems that each artist has a slightly different take on that moment of the Annunciation. Now, Many of you I know have remember uh, Sister Wendy Beckett's very successful PBS series on art history. Who can forget this nun in habit standing in front of all of those nudes and pointing out every detail? (laughs) She was amazing. We happen to have a coffee table book of hers, which is entitled Sister Wendy's 1000 Masterpieces. So I went to that book this past week to see what she had collected in her among her 1000 masterpieces of the Annunciation. And as you would suspect, there were many presentations of the Annunciation in that collection. But the one that I found most interesting was a painting by Simone Martini, a 14th century Italian artist. And this panel is found in the Uffizi Museum in Florence. What's interesting about it is that he captures the face of Mary in a way that most other artists do not. Mary has almost a frown on her face. Her lips are turning down on the edges. It's almost a pout. And she's clutching her her garment around her, almost as though she's recoiling from the presence of the angel. In that moment, Martini has captured this young woman in the moment of fear, wondering, what is this that is about to happen? What is this angel saying to me? How do I understand it? What I think is so important about that painting is that just like the church must struggle to ensure that we don't lose sight of the humanity of Jesus, the church also must struggle not to lose sight of the humanity of Mary. Because if we lose that, We have lost, I think, the power of the text. Now, I'll give you another image of the Annunciation. I hope it doesn't offend anyone. It's a contemporary one. It's a young woman in her mid-teens standing at 
uh, at a sink doing dishes, turning, and there is a very beautiful, uh, gorgeous young man, uh, blonde hair, perfect build, obviously angelic. And her cat is beside her with his hair standing on end. Her face is alarmed as though she is saying, I'm what? (laughs) That is the moment. That is the moment we want to capture of the human Mary. I'm what? You say, what? Is it any wonder she was afraid? And that's how the story of the Annunciation begins. We know that she was afraid because in the text, the angel says, Mary, don't be afraid. Anyone who stands in the presence of the holy, we might think our first impression would be this would be a time of praise, of of a welling up of excitement. But as you look through scripture, the encounter with the holy, whether it be an angel or some manifestation of God, is always received in fear. And it's only when we're reassured that we don't need to be afraid that we're able to stand in that presence, to be there, to wait there for what is about to come. Don't be afraid, Mary. Perhaps that's a message for some of us not to be afraid. God is with us. The holy is present with us. We need not be afraid. And then he goes on to say that she has found favor with God. Now, what an amazing thing, because we know virtually nothing about this young woman. But we can speculate that she was probably the most least likely person to bear the Messiah that one could find, perhaps, in all of Israel. She came from a poor family, almost certainly. She came from the backwaters of Israel. She didn't. She was from a town up in Galilee, from Nazareth. Nothing good came out of Nazareth. You know, you've heard that somewhere before. All the good things came from Jerusalem. That's where the power was. But she was from Nazareth and she was a young girl. Scholars speculate that she may have been around the age of 14. So one can imagine this 14 year old being presented with this possibility and wondering what on earth is happening to me? What is this all about? It seems also that the angel then starts to talk to her about what is going to happen in a way that is just too much for her to take in. He tells her that she will bear a son, that she will even name him Jesus, and that he will be the son of the Most High. And it's at this point that she seems to stop him with a very practical question. How can this be? I'm a virgin. I have not known a man. How can this be? One can imagine that what went through her mind went through the mind and has gone through the mind of many young women. All of the questions that impinge on that moment. What will my parents think? What will the community think? What will Joseph think? How can I possibly do this? The thing that I find the most amazing, really, about Mary is that God, I think, never violating her free will, invites her into something that had to be very difficult to accept, knowing that forever the conception of Jesus would be in question. How did that really happen? And in fact, that is the case even today. We have never been able to let go of that question. How did that really happen? 
And in truth, I think it really doesn't matter. It's not at the core of what we believe. It's not essential to our salvation that we believe in a virgin birth. And there are many, many different ways of trying to understand that. But what I think is important is that this young woman, no matter what the circumstances, said yes to God to one of the most difficult things a young woman could perhaps ever say yes to, accepting the reality that forever they would wonder about the circumstances of the conception of her son. And then finally Mary does say, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to to your word. Mary said yes. She allowed her will to be joined to God's will, to join in God's purpose. And in that moment, for a moment, all of salvation history was in balance. And that young woman said yes. Well, I think there's much for us to learn from this oh-so-human Mary receiving God in the way that she did and understanding the call of God on her life in the way that she did. For we, like Mary, are often quick to come up with all kinds of reasons why God's call isn't for us. It's not about us. I'm the wrong person. I'm not prepared for this. What about this? I've got to take care of this first before I can consider God's call over here. There are all sorts of reasons that come up. But perhaps the most destructive is fear. And fear is often what keeps us from joining our will with God's will. It's fear of what God might actually lead us into. Because we know that the God we serve will lead us into places we may not necessarily want to go. And to say yes to that can be difficult. And we know, too, that it may be possible that relationships may change. And we're somewhat fearful of that. There's so many things to be fearful about in answering God's call in our lives. But like Mary, at some point, this exchange that occurs between the two of us, between God and ourselves, at some point we say yes, and our lives are changed forever. But I think that perhaps the most important thing for us to take from this lesson of the Annunciation, from the the image of Mary and her acceptance of God's call in her life, is that we, like Mary, are being called every day to be God-bearers. We are being called every day to embody, to enflesh the Word, to enflesh the good news. It is dead if it ends here when we leave those doors. But it is alive if it has been made incarnate in our lives so that we can take that good news out and that we then become a gospel. We become good news to others. So this day, some of us find ourselves more Protestant than Catholic. Some of us find ourselves able to draw closer to Mary in devotion, while others of us find it easier to reflect on her life and see what it means to us in our life. On this fourth Sunday of Advent, let us give thanks for the young woman, Mary, for her willingness to say yes to God, to join her will to God for the purpose of salvation. And may God give us the will to join our wills with God's.
so that we may truly be God-bearers in the world around us. Amen.